Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. If you're new to the Bible, welcome. So glad that you're here. There are Bibles in the seat rack right in front of you. Feel free to grab that and even take it home if you need one at home. The Bible is broken up into 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. The Gospel of Mark is in the New Testament. A good way to find it is go two-thirds into your Bible and open up for there. And you should be fairly close. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we are in Mark chapter 14. Again, if you're new to the Bible, uh, not in the original manuscripts, but later someone to help us all out, decided to chapter and verse each of the books. And so you'll see there's a big number as you scroll through the Gospel of Mark. And those big numbers are the chapters. The little numbers are the verses. So look for big 14. (laughs) And then go to verse 12. We are in for such a treat. This is a wonderful, wonderful passage. Mark 14, verse 12 says this. Just follow along with me. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples, this is referring to Jesus, said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And whenever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready, prepared for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Okay, stop right there. Now skip down a few verses to verse 22. While they were eating, verse 22 says, He took some bread and after blessing, he broke it. And he gave it to them and he said, Take it. This is my body. When he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you all, never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And after singing the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen? Amen. And so this passage has huge relevance to our lives here in 2019 as followers of Jesus. I've titled our sermon, The Greatest Meal Ever. I'm sure that you've had some decent meals over the years. Maybe your wedding reception meal, perhaps a birthday meal. Maybe it's a hometown buffet when you're really hungry. (laughs) But I would argue that this is the greatest meal ever. I had a decent meal this week. Uh, My friend Tim Nellis and John Smalley took Josiah Waters, who's one of our Calvary missionaries, out to lunch on Tuesday. Josiah and his wife have been here in California fundraising to go back to Asia. They left for Asia on Thursday for two years. Can you imagine just packing your stuff and I'll be back in two years. 
So we asked Josiah, where do you want to go? It's one of your last meals here in the States. What do you feel like? And he thought for a moment, it's a weighty decision. I think I want barbecue. Ask, well, why do we do this? As a Jewish family, why every year do we set aside time to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and, and eat this meal in a certain way with certain people? Like, what is the point of this? And a good Jewish family would point their kids, first of all, to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus 6 says this, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you with for my people. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. There's four promises that God gives these people that are under captivity when he says these things to the Egyptians. Gives them four promises. I want you to make a little mental note of each of these promises. And we'll reflect back on it in a minute or two. So this is from Exodus chapter 6, 6 and 7. And then God fulfills this promise a few chapters later in our Bibles in Exodus chapter 12. As we read about the Passover. I mean, as you know... Israel was in captivity, and so God appoints Moses to be their leader, to take them out from bondage. 
And he sends plagues to, to wake up Pharaoh. Remember Moses says, let my people go. And Pharaoh, after every one of the plagues, his heart softens and he says, okay, just go, Moses. Get out of my hair. But then his heart is hardened and he changes his mind because if the Israelites leave Egypt, that will ruin the entire economy and his power and leadership. And so his heart hardens after every one of the plagues and he changes his mind. And the people are still held in captivity. Until we get to Exodus 12 and God creates a plan. He says, I want every Jewish family to listen to my words, to pay careful attention. You're to slaughter a lamb and you're to place the blood of the lamb over your doorposts. And at midnight tonight, an angel of death, it's called, will come through every home. And every home that has blood over their doorpost, the angel of death will pass over. And every home that does not have the blood over the door, the firstborn male will be killed in that home. And that's what happened. In Exodus 12, there's a mass slaughter. Everyone dies, every firstborn male dies, except those that listen to God and place blood above their doorpost. This is Passover. And so at that point, Pharaoh goes, fine, get out of here. And so the nation races towards the Red Sea. It parts, they run through it, and they reach, not the promised land yet, but the wilderness. And it's out in the wilderness. We read this in different places in the Old Testament. One is in Numbers chapter 9. That they are to remember and celebrate the Passover every single year. And specifically in the first month of the Jewish year, which would be April. About April 14th, 13th, 14th, whenever the sun went down. They were to remember that God delivered them. Out of bondage from the Egyptians. When they placed blood over their doorpost, he had grace and he passed over them. And so in Numbers chapter 9, we read, this is the second anniversary of the Passover, that they're to do this every year. And so you see in God's big story the preparation for this supper that Jesus takes with his disciples. For a couple thousand years, God has been preparing his people for what would take place in the upper room. And then Mark gives us a couple details about this specific preparation of this specific meal. We see his sovereign hand at work. He says, and Mark says, that there's two disciples that go out to prepare the meal. We know in Luke 22 that that's Peter and John. Jesus tells them, look for a man carrying a jar of water. This would be kind of unique in the first century because... The only people that carried water in this culture were women. And so for a man to be carrying water would, one, be humiliating to him. Two, you just just wouldn't see it. And so Peter and John would be able to identify this person fairly quickly. It's the one guy carrying water from the well. They spot this guy and they follow him to his owner's house. And it just so happens that this upper room is furnished and available for Passover. 
But I don't know if you understand this, but this would be so rare because Israel would triple, Jerusalem would triple in size during Passover week. Some say there'd be over 300,000 people that would cram in to the city. It'd be like Super Bowl week where every, every hotel room is booked. This is Jerusalem. And yet Jesus and his sovereign plan tells Peter and John, go find the one guy with water, follow him to his owner's house. By the way, he's going to have a fully furnished house. It's a perfect upper room for us to celebrate this meal. And then look at verse 15 of Mark 14. It says, and he himself will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. So Jesus is referring to us as the disciples. Here's a photo uh, I found of a, f- a Jewish family from San Francisco in the 1920s. Here's Matt Davis. No, I'm just, ki- <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Um, I look at this family and I just wonder, like, wow, if this picture could talk, we would probably learn so much about what's going on beyond, behind the scenes of this photo. But it was typical, not only in the first century, but also even today, that you celebrate Passover with your biological family. In fact, the scriptures tell us that there's parameters over who can celebrate the Passover. You couldn't have a foreigner come join you, a Gentile in other words, come join you for the Passover. It needed to be a sacred time for those that were under the covenant. And so even today, Passover is, it's a family affair. Here's Jesus saying, let us go celebrate the Passover together. Jesus, once again, is expanding what family looks like. You have your biological family, praise God for that. God's provided that for you, for better or for worse. But you also have, as a follower of Jesus, a much larger family. Look around you right now. These are your brothers and your sisters. Do we treat each other as we should as a healthy family? Look at Jesus expanding the parameters of of what it looked like to be a brother or a sister. What a privilege it is to come into this space every Sunday, Wednesday, whenever you get a chance to be here and be around fellow Christians. I pray, I pray that you look at it like that. We've even talked about the idea that we want to be warm and joyful as we gather together. And I really begin, I really believe that begins by having us see each other as true family. May the Spirit of God do that here at Calvary Church. And so you see Jesus eating with his disciples, preparing this meal, and then once again, verse 16 says, everything played out just as he had told the disciples that it would. And once again, we see and we understand that Jesus is in control. He is the sovereign God, he is in control. We need to hear that every week. Every single week. Because during the week I forget. And I know you do too. Jesus is in control. He's in control of the biopsy results that you are waiting for. Jesus is in control of the wayward child that you are praying comes back to faith. 
Jesus is in control if you're single of what your future looks like and your future spouse. Jesus is in control of your finances. Please, Lord, be in control of that. <laughs> Jesus is in control, students, of your grades when it's, it's only March and you're already over school. Jesus is in control of where you're at in your studies. Jesus is in control of our future. Do you believe this? The whole lead up of the Passover, the details of this very supper point once again to the fact that Jesus is in control. Please hear that and believe that today. But a skeptic may wonder, well, do I really want Jesus to be in control? Is, is it really a good thing that Jesus is in control if that's true? And the answer is yes. Why? Because he is the good shepherd who has laid his life down for his sheep. Romans 5 says God demonstrated his love in this. While we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. And he points in this meal to that very fact. The Passover all leads to this, that Jesus would go and die on the cross. Here's a, maybe what a modern version of a Passover plate would look like. We know from the book of Exodus that there were several things that were included. In a typical Passover meal, you would have a lamb, you would have bitter herbs, and you would have matzah, which was unleavened bread. Leaven is any agent that raises dough. So it could be yeast, it could be baking soda. And so it was important, Passover would also kick over the, the week of unleavened bread. It was important during this time to get rid of any rising agent in your home. Any leaven in your home was to be swept out and removed for these days. And the reason for that is because leaven was connected in a symbolic way to sin. And so in a way, you were sweeping out sin from your home and your life during Passover and the week of unleavened bread. And look what Jesus has to say about this in verse 22. He says, while they were eating, he took some bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And look at what he says. Take it. This is my body. So Jesus takes the matzah bread, the unleavened bread, the, the bread that would represent no sin, and he personalizes this Passover ritual to himself. He says, here's your sinless bread. This is me. I am sinless. I am the one who has been tempted and yet is without sin. Jesus is the only one that can claim this, that he is without sin, that he is sinless. You and I, no chance. <laughs> we were born into this world with a sinful nature. And we confirm that sinful nature the minute we could start talking. Each of us has fallen short of God's holiness and is sinful. Jesus, being fully man yet fully God, was sinless. So he takes the bread here. He says, this is me. I have 
no sin. And I offer my sinless body for your sinful body. Is that a good exchange or what? You want that exchange? Your sin for Jesus' sinlessness? Who wins in that one? So Jesus takes the bread. He points to himself with this Passover ritual. And then he takes the cup. Here's what a fancy chalice would look like. This is what I picture the Passover cup looking like that Jesus held up that night in the greatest meal ever. Probably, though, it looked a little bit more like this. This is an artifact from, we think, around that time. So Jesus raises the cup, and he gave thanks to it. He said, verse 24 of Mark 14, This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for you. Remember, we had talked just a few minutes ago about Exodus chapter 6, 6 and 7. How God gave the nation of Israel four promises even before the Passover had taken place. The Passover fulfills these promises as God delivers his people. So part of the Passover ritual is they would take four cups during the meal. And they remember God's promises from Exodus chapter 6 that I will bring you out, I will deliver you, I will redeem you, and I will take you for my people. Now we know from when they would, how they would do the Passover and even how they do it today, that the third cup of the meal would be taken after you ate the main course of the meal. And so here's Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. It says they were eating in verse 22. He holds up the unleavened bread, and then he takes the third cup. Do you see this? Jesus takes the third cup, the cup of redemption, and he says, this is my blood poured out for you. Jesus is saying in this moment, not only am I sinless, but I have come to redeem you from your sins. How does he do it? Well, he becomes the true Passover lamb. He becomes the sacrificial lamb. Now, a little warning to you. This is a little graphic, this next photo, but I want you to see it just to take in the gravity of what this is. This would be a sacrifice of lambs on a Passover. They would pour out the blood of the lamb. Jesus is saying, I'm the ultimate lamb. I'm the pure, spotless lamb. In the Old Testament, we know that covenants were created through blood. Moses, when he reaffirms uh, the covenant between God and Israel, he sprinkles blood on the people. In Jeremiah chapter 31, the prophet Jeremiah, in the midst of a lot of bad news in that book, says something really exciting. He says, you know about the old covenant, but there's a new covenant to come. And he's pointing towards the blameless, spotless lamb, the Messiah that will give his life as a ransom for many. Now we know even in our world today, there's incredible sacrificial acts that are happening. I don't know if you've heard of the white helmets. There's some political kind of barbs about what exactly they're doing. But over the last several years, they've been in Syria 
getting paid 150 US dollars a month to run into bombed out buildings and rescue people that have been left there. To date, the White Helmets have saved over 100,000 people, including kids like this one. I mean, they're heroes for $150 a month. They're running into burning buildings. They're digging through rubble, trying to save a life. That's incredible. Like, what sacrifice? Or I read a story of a fire that happened in Yellowstone Park, and as they were surveying the damage, some park rangers were walking through the charred ruins of some of the park, and they found a burnt-to-a-crisp little bird. And the park ranger walked up to the dead bird and kicked it. And as the bird flipped over, three little baby birdies scampered out. The ultimate sacrifice, giving your life for another. And those are great. Like, white helmets, incredible. Could you do that? A little mama bird? Who could argue with that? <laughs> and yet, that just pales in comparison to the God of our universe. The triune Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, deciding that the Son will come into our world. He'll leave the glory of heaven. He'll leave the adulation and worship of heaven. And he'll come into our world. He'll live a life that none of us could live. He'll go to the cross, not for what he did, but what you and I did. This is the good news of Jesus. But you have to realize it, it came at a price. A high cost. The shed blood of our Savior. I've come across uh, a devotional that has compiled Puritan prayers from the 1700s, and it's become my new favorite thing over the last two months. If you even want to get it from Randy in the bookstore or order it somewhere else, it's called The Valley of Vision. Just collects a bunch of prayers from the 1700s and 1800s, and I love this quote that I came across. Speaking about Jesus' sacrifices, thy blood is the blood of incarnate God. It's worth infinite, it's value beyond all thought. This is what Jesus has done for us. The one who is in control is the one who shed his blood for you and me. Charles Spurgeon was a famous English pastor in the 1800s and he says this, where is the lamb that God has provided for a burnt offering? It's Jesus. Where is the morning and evening lamb to take away Israel's guilt? It's Jesus. Where is the lamb that bleeds and dies, that with its blood, the lintel and the two side posts may be smeared to secure the residence of the house from the destroying angel in Egypt? It is Jesus. In his entire life and in his death, he was no lion, no beast of prey, but he was the gentle, suffering, sacrificial victim, dying so we may not die, presenting himself a sacrifice acceptable to God. This is our Jesus. Now you may be new with us here, and I'm so glad that you're here today. And this is a lot to take in. Blood, sacrifice, Passover, covenants. Here's what you need to know. Jesus came into this world. He gave his life for you. He died on the cross. 
The Bible says that he rose again, overcoming death, conquering sin, and he is alive today. And whoever believes in him will not die but have eternal life. It's good news. If you're new, hear that today. Maybe some of you, though, have been around a little while. You've been a Christian for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, I'll I'll stop. (laughs) And this news at times can be like, yep, I know it, it's good, move on. My prayer, though, is that as we just even look here in Mark, that this would be fresh news to you today. I was going for a walk with my wife Marie on Friday. She's like, how's your message going? And I don't know, if you've ever preached or taught anywhere, normally two days before your message, you don't like it. <laughs> I don't know, it's just like the cycle of how it goes. And so on Friday, I was walking with her, and I was like, I don't know. This is me walking. I don't know. Like, I just don't feel like I have, like, any, like, interesting or good stories that will, like, capture people. And she kind of just laughs because she knows I go through this cycle every time. And then it just hit me. This is the story. This is the interesting story. This is what we need to be captured by. It's Jesus. The Passover lamb who prepared himself to die for us. This is the truth that you and I get to live with. And oh, by the way, there's one more promise. Look at verse 25. It says this. Truly I say to you, I'll never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. There's a promise in this greatest meal ever. And that is, is that Jesus will once again dine with us. Jesus will return again. Revelation chapter 19 verse 9 sets it up so well. It says that there'll be another meal. So the title of today's message is the greatest meal ever. But let me put in parentheses, so far. (laughs) Because there is a meal to come when you and I will dine face to face with the resurrected Jesus. And communion reflects and points us towards that. So here's what Mark's getting at. God has prepared all along for the Passover to symbolize Jesus giving his life. That Jesus, the great lamb, the pure and spotless one, died and shed his blood to redeem us from sin. And Jesus is coming back to rescue us and we will dine with him. So, it makes sense right now. Let's take a supper. Let's take communion together here today. And let's remember these things. That God is in control He's prepared everything. He's in control of your life and your future. Jesus gave his life for your sin, and he's coming back. I want you to sit with those things as the elements are passed. Josh is going to come up and lead us in a song of worship, and the elements will be passed, a little cup of juice and unleavened bread. What I want you to do is just hold those elements and think through each of these things. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that these things are true. Thank you, God, for this incredible story, rescuing your people out of slavery 
and then ultimately rescuing all of us out of sin. Lord, may the table today be the greatest meal ever.